0: Again, a good morning to you. Wow, this is full. I don't think I've been here with it this full. Awesome. Before we begin, I want to put in a plug for a movie that's coming out in October. It's called Indivisible. This movie is about an army chaplain and his family who the army chaplain deployed to Iraq and. In the process of his ministry, he led folks to Christ, and some of the same folks that he led to Christ uh, died on the field of battle. Darren came home, and in the aftermath of his deployment, resigned from his commission in the army as a chaplain, and almost lost his family. The story that this movie tells is one of a resilient faith, but, and by resilient, what I, what I do not mean is he did everything right. I said he almost lost his family. At the chaplain conference that I was at in July, Darren and Heather were there, and I got a chance to meet them and talk to them after seeing the movie. And I want to encourage you, go out and see this. Number one, it's the ministry of the chaplains put on display. Chaplains are at the forefront of religious freedom in America. And their endorsers are the tip of the spear that are doing work in Congress. Stuff I can't, I don't even have time to go into right now. The amazing things that God is doing amongst the members of Congress. Pray for them. Pray for your chaplains. Now, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we will pick up the reading of God's Word in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read from verses 18 to 39. One of the most important things we will do this morning is hear God's word. And I pray that through the reading and the preaching of God's word, he speaks to us this morning. Beginning in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall, be, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are all being killed all the day long. Almighty God, to whom all our hearts are open and all our desires are known and from whom no secrets are hidden, pierce our hearts today by your word. May it be a useful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit and move us to trust you more and more in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we're going to drill down this morning into verse 28. Verse 28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Our ability to thrive our ability to be resilient there's a buzzword there's a key word isn't it our ability to resilience to be resilient rests in the sovereign purpose of god that is the point of this passage this morning i believe and that's what we're going to drill down into the heidelberg catechism question 1 it's one of my favorite go to doctrines of Scripture that I believe that Scripture teaches. It says this, What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer goes like this, That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That should be a definition of resilience. But unfortunately, the world's idea of what resilience is let's put it this way. I was at a chaplain's conference back in 2009 when the Army had turned to the chaplain corps and said, okay, we need some help here. We are not a resilient force. PTSD, MTBI, TBI, traumatic brain injury, or mild traumatic brain injury, are taking their toll amongst the ranks. We're not doing well. Help us become more resilient. Well, there's two definitions of resilience. One has to do with a building, a structure, and another one has to do with psychology in the world. So the building or structure, resilience is a design objective for buildings and infrastructure. It is the ability to absorb or avoid damage without suffering complete failure. Or then there's the psychological definition. And there's some terms here that uh, are kind of ambiguous because, what do you know, it's psychology. Psychological resilience is defined as an individual's ability to properly adapt to stress and adversity. Stress and adversity can come in the shape of family or relation problems, health problems, workplace or financial worries, among others. In other words, resilience is one's ability to bounce back from a negative experience without, with competent functioning, competent functioning. Whatever that means, right? In other words, the world's definition of resilience and the gender, not the gender, the religiously neutral definition of resilience is basically a Christless gospel. But what I want to talk to you today is, is about a Christian resilience. A resilience that is based on the promises of God's word. I believe that in this passage in front of us this morning, we see a resilience, that resilience is a faith in a bright future that far surpasses the present circumstances. And what is that bright future? That bright future is none other than the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe it because he's already come once already and fulfilled the promises that God made to the prophets throughout time. You see, it's not faith that brings resilience. It's the object of our faith, the hope of the future. Trials of our faith separate the men from the boys or the women from the girls. No recruit has ever been ready to receive the Medal of Honor on his first day of basic training. And likewise, we must be trained by the sufferings of life in order to be fit citizens of the new creation. And God's purpose, God's purpose is to come in all his glory and reside in creation with his creatures. And Revelation gives us an in-living color of heaven on earth, the goal to which God is directing all of history. Romans 8 is Paul's declaration that God is indeed going to make this happen. And he he began to do so at the first advent of Jesus Christ. And he continues his work in us by his Holy Spirit. And the trials of our faith are designed to shake us loose of the trappings of worldliness and make us fit for life as God's children. And one day, the sons of God will be revealed. Now, I say sons of God because that's the words that the scripture uses. The scripture says it's the sons of God. Why not the daughters of God? Well, in the time of this writing, the daughters the daughters weren't considered to be prominent. They weren't considered to be anything but things to be traded for gain. We're not daughters. We are all considered to have the rights of sons. That's the faith of Scripture. One day... The sons of God will be revealed and the glorified alongside the Son of God in a recreated heaven and earth where God dwells with all his people. Christians, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this, Christians ought to be some of the most resilient people on the planet because we are certain, we know, as this passage tells us, that God Almighty, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has given us his ironclad guarantee and signed it in the blood of Jesus Christ that his purpose will be accomplished. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about some things that we must know in order to rest in this promise of God's purpose. We're going to drill down into verse 28 where I believe we find some key elements that we must know in order to rest firmly on the promise of God. Though the larger passage probably has more points, I'm only going to talk about three. I want to talk about what we must know. We must know who are the people of God's purpose. We must know the goodness of God's purpose. And then... Finally, the certainty of God's purpose. First of all, the people of his purpose. And we know that all things work together for good to whom? To those who love God, number one. The people of God's purpose are lovers of God. What does it mean to love God? Well, the word agape or agapeo, translates a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which is of the meaning of which is familial faithfulness. The faithful love between a husband and wife. The faithful love of a father to his children. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6 says this, that God shows love, steadfast love, to thousands of those who obey him and keep his commandments. But I want you to know something this morning. Loving God does not mean being perfect. Let me say that again. Loving God does not mean being perfect. It means to be faithful and steadfast. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains what? Steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Being steadfast, this word, it, it has this meaning of staying in one place beyond an expected point of time. Or maintaining a belief or a course of action in the face of opposition. We're called to be a steadfast people steadfast in our love. Loving God means keeping his commandments ever before you as a measuring stick. That's what it means to keep the commandments, is we keep them before us as a measuring stick. I don't measure myself, or I should not measure myself, though sometimes I do, against other people. The proper measurement of my life And I believe the proper measurement that we should all have is a measuring against God's standard. Now, lest you think I'm preaching a message of works, I am not. I am preaching our love for God is shown by keeping his commandments, by keeping them before us. James says also in verse 22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Brothers and sisters, being a doer of the word is to measure oneself against the standard of God's word and to run to Christ for the covenantal mercy promised in him. Loving God means abandoning all hope in your own righteousness and casting all your cares and sin upon him and trusting his faithfulness to his covenant that he fulfilled in Christ. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul declared that there is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ and who walk in the Spirit. Well, what is this walking in the Spirit? The walking in the Spirit is keeping God's word ever before us. Not only are we a God-loving people who abandon our own righteousness and trust in the righteousness of Christ, we're a called people. We're called according to God's purpose. The people of God, the people of God's purpose are called to suffering. Now, that's not really good news, is it? They're called to suffering, but we're also called to hope. All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called. But we are called to suffer. Romans eight seventeen, And if, heir, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. In verse 20, it says, For creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. it didn't want to do that. But because of him who subjected it in hope. For we know that all creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That doesn't sound good either, does it? Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ sanctified our suffering. He sanctified the pains that we go through here in this life by coming and joining us in our suffering. He was in all points tempted and tried just as we are, and he without sin. I want you to also know that suffering is a fellowship. This word for suffering in this passage talks about a fellowship of suffering. It's not meant to be done alone. When we suffer, we share that suffering with one another. Means to suffer together. You know, there's great comfort in suffering that is shared. All the military schools that produce bomb technicians and rangers and basic, even basic training itself all include an element of shared hardships to be suffered. And we are called to suffering. We're called to hope in our suffering to endure it for the sake of a better future promised. (laughs) If God is for us, who can be against us? We're talking about the God who spoke his word and all of this came into existence. We're talking about that word that came to the prophets. We're talking about that word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18 tells us that our sufferings are not to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him endured the cross. And in the Old Testament in Genesis, the writer of Genesis tells us about Jacob's great love for Rachel. Remember that story? Jacob served his father-in-law, his uncle, For seven years, and the scriptures say it was only as a few days because of his great love. All creation eagerly awaits our vindication, but it groans and laments and suffers now. We have the first fruits of this glorification, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit helps us when we are weak and at the end of ourselves. Brothers and sisters... As the hymn writer wrote, when darkness veils his lovely face, do you rest on his promised unfailing love? Is it your main function in life to live as a lover of God, to call to suffer in hope? Are you trusting in Christ today with your future? Are you trusting him with your past? Are you a lover of God? We've looked at the people of the purpose. We are a people called to love God and trust him alone for our future. And now the goodness of his purpose. God's good purpose is to take what sin has destroyed and restore it as a grand cosmic demonstration of his character. He is in the process of recreation. And he has chosen to begin his work In us. In you and I. Now, it doesn't look much like it sometimes, does it? But you know, not only has God chosen to begin that work in us, he chooses to use his people, the ones who love him and are called, according to his purpose, to bring about this new creation. But we have to ask sometimes, What about the things that God allows to come our way? What about the tough things of life? Is there really a good purpose to evil? You know, I hear it all the time, and I'm sure you do too. You might have even said it. I know I have. Everything happens for a reason, right? Right. Romans 8.28 has been used and abused in a pat attempt at comfort as if God himself condones evil or is the author of sin. But that is not at all what this passage is saying. Sin is evil. There are natural occurrences that just seem evil. And then there's our own sin that we sin against others, which You know, God didn't author that. That came from the evil lurking within our hearts. And when people sin against us, it hurts. Well-meaning people have caused more harm than good by a misuse of this verse. And the best thing we can do for someone in the midst of a tragedy is to just be with them and pray for them. Listen to them and reflect back to them what they're saying. But what this verse is saying, hear this, what this verse is saying is that it uses the word from which we get our word synergy or to synergize. Think about that for a moment. God synergizes all things for the purpose of his his good purpose of recreating this world and making it a a place that is worthy of him to dwell in. The good purpose of God is not in the evil that we suffer. God takes all of these things, the good, the bad, the otherwise, and synergizes them together so that the end result is his ultimate good purpose. Synergy, it describes a, a teamwork, how things work together. Yet it is not the evil things that are working themselves together. It is the hand of God behind the scene that is taking these otherwise horrible things and good things. God uses good things to mold us as well. But he's taking all things and synergizing them together. The bottom line is this, brothers and sisters. God is so big and so powerful That he can take the worst situations, horrible things, and synergize them together so that God's good purpose is accomplished in you, in his church, and in all creation. Do you believe that this morning? Is your faith in the goodness of God the source of your resilience and hope? We have been promised a glory that's awaiting us that will make the trials we face now dim to nothing. I don't stand before you as a perfect testimony of having done this, of having perfectly trusted God in my tough circumstance. I didn't. But what did happen by the grace of God, it happened in my life, It's happened in Darren and Heather's life, the the chaplain that I was just talking about, is that God has worked his miracle in us and given us the faith to be resilient, the faith to come running back to him with our trials and with our circumstances. Well, how do we know? What is our hope? That this will actually be accomplished. What is our hope that God really is working in the hard circumstances of life and in the good times and the good circumstances of life? What is our hope that God is working all things for our good? Our hope rests in the covenant God fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the anchor of our hope. In chapter one of Romans, we read That righteousness by faith apart from the deeds of the law has been revealed. Our hope for a better and brighter future in the kingdom of God depends not on things that we do. Our hope is in the righteousness that comes by faith as we trust completely in God. If he didn't spare Jesus and gave him up for us all, we can trust our future to him, regardless of our past. In chapter 4 of Romans, uh, Paul makes makes reference to the covenant made with Abraham. The covenant preceded the circumcision. Abraham was promised a land and a people and the favor of God while he was still worshiping idols in southern Iraq. And in Genesis chapter 15... Belief preceded the covenant ceremony, that covenant ceremony that God made with Abraham where he obligated himself. God obligated himself to the curses of the covenant so that those who have the faith of Abraham would only, only ever know God's blessing. You see, this confidence that Abraham had was so great that the scriptures don't make mention of any issue that Abraham took when God told him to take his son up on the mountain and kill him. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. He says, no big deal. God promised me a son. He, I'm going to have a son. He's already given him to me. Now he's asking for him back. He'll give me a son. That was that was Abraham's reasoning, and it took years for Abraham to develop that faith. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. In Romans 5, based on this covenant that God fulfilled when he became, as Abraham called him, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, because he provided the lamb in the place of Isaac. We have been justified and no longer enemies of God. And Paul anchors his application of this passage in history. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. The God, the one who justifies, is the only one who could bring charges against us in the first place. Jesus who died and rose again. Brothers and sisters, our greatest need, <laughs> our greatest need in this world has already been fulfilled in Christ. The only one who could possibly condemn us is the one who died, was rose, risen again and intercedes for us. We can be certain that God is working all things together for our good based upon how he has filled Fulfilled his covenant promises in the past. What is the anchor of your faith? What are you hoping in? Is God's promise good enough to keep you faithful in the tough times? God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And he, Christ, is, the, is our guarantee that God is now and forever on our side. Brothers and sisters, this promise... "...is for those who are lovers of God, the called ones, who fellowship in the suffering of Christ, in the hope of the resurrection of Christ, lovers of God, whose hope is in his purpose of restoring all things to their rightful place, who signed the contract of this promise in the blood of his Son. Are you trusting in Christ alone today? Are you trusting in that that he is your satisfaction for the pure and righteous demands of a holy God?" If you are, then you rightfully lay claim to the promise that nothing at all can, can ultimately harm you and that all things are working together in God's masterful hands to bring about his kingdom purpose. This promise is for those who love God and are called. But it's also a warning Because there are those who are outside of the promise. And it could be that there are some here this morning that are outside of that covenant promise. Are you trusting in yourself and in your own abilities to secure your future? Well, then how much will be enough? If this describes you, then things are not ultimately working for good. In fact, they are piling up as evidence against you that you will have to face God and answer for one day. I urge you, repent. Turn from, your, turn from your own efforts. Abandon them and trust in Christ alone who justifies the wicked on behalf, on, on the basis of his sacrifice. Then and only then you too can rest in the comfort that nothing in life can hurt you. In fact, that all things must work to good and accomplish God's purpose in you. Let us pray. Lord, we're about to approach your table. Thank you for giving us the visible means to taste and to touch the sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, you came and you lived a righteous life on our behalf, not because you had to, but because you wanted to. You died the perfect death the only death that could ever satisfy the demands of our holy and righteous God. Oh, Lord God, you came and took our suffering upon yourself. You tasted our, you tasted our pain. And Lord, you, you have said that if we, if we are steadfast in our suffering, if we are steadfast in holding on to you and you alone for our future, that that is, that is something that you will grant to us, that you will give us a great future. A, Lord, we have this hope, and this table shows us our hope. Lord, may it nourish our spirits, as it even as it nourishes our bodies, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.